Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhina asfa amma ba'd. Please come closer inshallah. Those who are staying for this hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So we will inshallah um, try to continue where we left off and just give a quick recap of the the scenario we are discussing as this is a very long hadith and uh, not try to repeat too much of the detail that was mentioned but at the same time those who may be joining us and missed the initial session of this hadith just to, so they could have a background of what's going on Bismillahirrahmanirrahim وفي قال حدثنا أبو اليمان الحكم بن نافع قال أخبرنا شعيب عن الزهري قال أخبرني عبيد الله بن عبد الله بن عتبة بن مسعود أن عبد الله بن عباس رضي الله عنهما أخبره أن أبا سفيان بن حرب أخبره. So we have the young Sahabi Abdullah bin Abbas رضي الله عنهما. He narrates that senior Sahabi, senior meaning by age, even though he accepted Islam right at the end. We talked about how he accepted Islam. Uh, in my last session, last week I was not here, but the last session I had with you, we had a long discussion about Abu Sufyan, you may recall. His name was Sakhar bin Harb. Sakhar bin Harb bin Umayyah bin Abd Munaf, uh, who was a cousin of Rasulullah sallallahu in the fourth level. <coughs> So he, this Abu Sufyan narrates to him, This is a narration where Abu Sufyan, عنه, when the incident occurred, he was not a Muslim. And when he is transmitting it on the hadith, at that point he is a Muslim. So there are two parts of a, uh, of a hadith. One is when the incident occurs, and one is when the incident is narrated. So when the incidents mentioned in this hadith occurred, at that point, Abu Sufyan was not a Muslim. But when he is narrating the story on to Abdullah bin Abbas, at that point he is not only a Muslim, he is a Sahabi of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So if there is a narration mentioned by someone before they accepted Islam in the statement of Kufr, then would that be necessarily a reliable statement? It could be a lie. Because that person is not even a a Muslim. But in this case, despite the fact that the incidents that occurred occur, happened when? Prior to Islam, but he is narrating the story after Islam. So therefore, after Islam, there's no, choice, no chance of him lying. And he is a Sahabi, and there is a principle in Usul al-Hadith that As-Sahaba kulluhum adul. All the Sahaba are considered ultimate, most reliable narrators. In fact, as we kind of touched upon it last time, when he's asked the questions that we will see, he did not lie as far as possible. He, even though it was to his benefit to lie, he did not lie because that would have seemed as a sign of weakness. So Abu Sufyan ibn Harb, he narrates, أَخْبَرَهُ أَنَّ هِرَقَلْ Hiraqal, we talked about the fact that there was a Roman Empire. Uh, in, I mean, this is a long uh, story. The Roman Empire had the rise and fall and the decline of the Roman Empire. We cannot cover that, their volumes, but we just very briefly mentioned that there was a Roman Empire and then it split into the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire, their capital was in Constantinople, Constantinia, which became Istanbul, and Hiraqal was the king there. 
in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had sent a letter through Dihya Kalbi Dihya Kalbi radiyallahu ta'ala anhu the name of the Sahabi came in the beginning of this chapter of Badul Wahi when we spoke about Jibreel alayhi salam coming in various different forms bringing the revelation and one of the forms was Tamathlul Maliki Rajulan where the angel comes in the form of a human being so what is beautiful here is that when Rasulullah is sending a messenger to the kings or the great kings of the time, he sends the Hayakalbi. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending a message to Rasulullah, he sends Jibreel in the form of the Hayal Kalbi. So that is a beautiful parallel we see between Jibreel and the Hayal Kalbi. And the Hayal Kalbi was, mashaAllah, granted a lot of husn and beauty from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which eventually became such a source of fitna that he would cover himself when he would go out subhanallah to um, protect himself becoming a means of a fitna and a test for others so fitna, fitna actually means a test and Recently, we were having this discussion in class where Rasulullah mentioned that one of the greatest fitnas for men, there is, I have not seen a fitna greater for men than women. And at face value, sometimes the feminists or others may incorrectly feel that this hadith is misogynistic, it is anti woman, because the term fitna, we feel it obviously to have a negative connotation. So if the hadith is taken just literally, there is no greater fitna for men than women. So women are fitna. And fitna equals bad in our minds. So one very simple and easy explanation of the hadith, not only as a response to the objections from feminists or those borderline or those who are confused, but also so that we have a deeper appreciation of what the hadith means and what the meaning of the word fitna is, is that we can all agree uh, that if there is anyone who is truly innocent and beautiful and, and uh, is harmless in this world, it would be our innocent young babies, children, infants. They are so harmless they're so pure, they're in their fitrah, the natural disposition. They cannot plot to hurt anyone. Um, they are dependent on us as caregivers to take care of them. How could they be out there to destroy anyone? So these beautiful young children, what did Allah Ta'ala speak about them? And what did Allah Ta'ala say about them? He said, إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ fitna." That your awlad are also a fitna. So, how evil could these innocent children be? Does it mean that fitna is an evil thing? No. Fitna means a test. Fitna means that the children, these innocent children are also a test. How are they a test? That because the love that we have for them, and we want to fulfill their needs, and beyond their needs, even their desires. And in the interest of fulfilling the desires of these children, we will earn as much halal as we can. 
And if the opportunity for haram comes, then we will not hesitate sometimes to go into haram. Why? To fulfill the desires of the beloved children. So the love that we have in our hearts for the children, that is the, the test for us. So likewise, the attraction that is there in the heart of the man for the woman may become a major source of, uh, of a, a, maybe a major form of a test from Allah Ta'ala for that individual. So he ends up displeasing Allah to please the creation. Whether in, any, in so many different forms. To get married or before marriage or after marriage or premarital or extramarital or marital or whatever form it may be. So, when we, the hadith says the woman is a fitna, meaning the love in the heart of the man for the woman. When the child is a fitna, means the love in the heart of the parents for the child. So we can say the child itself is innocent of that, and likewise the woman is innocent of that. And likewise the wealth, the love of the wealth is a fitna. The wealth itself is not inherently evil, nor is it inherently good. It's neutral. It's the love in our heart for it that is a test for us. So in any case, <clears throat> what happened here, we were at Dihya Kalbi. Dihya Kalbi, he was a fitna, right? He became a fitna for the woman. How did he? So he covered himself to, um, to avoid that. And literally, like we use the word, for example, maharim, mahram. Mahram is an individual with whom it is haram to get married, right? An individual that is haram to get married. So that is, uh, yeah, parents, children, spouse, uh, siblings, uncles, nephews. So since it is haram to get married, Allah Ta'ala mentions them in the ayat, حَرِمَتْ عَلَيْكُمْ مَهَاتُكُمْ وَبَنَاتُكُمْ وَأَخَوَاتُكُمْ وَأَمَّاتُكُمْ All of these relatives are mentioned. Since they are haram for a woman to marry or for a man to marry, depending on which way you are looking at it, uh, therefore, there is supposed to be in a normal situation, no fitna. Why is there no fitna? Because you cannot get married. So there's no point in pursuing a wrong, illicit relationship. It's not going to go anywhere. Considering marriage to be the end goal of the haram behavior. So you cannot get married. So if you cannot get married, there's no point of starting a haram relationship. Right? <coughs> or, or any type of relationship of that nature. So therefore, the ahkam of hijab do not apply. And therefore, khalwa and remaining in solitude with that individual is permissible. Because there's no fitna. Ideally, normally. So for example, um, would a daughter-in-law have to wear niqab in front of her father-in-law? No. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, it is haram amongst the women to marry. Allah ta'ala says, وَحَلَائِلُ أَبْنَائِكُمْ And the wives of your sons. وَحَلَائِلُ أَبْنَائِكُمْ Halail is the plural of halila. Halila means the woman that is halal. So the woman that is halal is the wife. وَحَلَائِلُ أَبْنَائِكُمْ أَلَّذِينَ مِنْ أَصْلَابِكُمْ Meaning your biological children's wives. Your biological sons' wives. Not adopted son's wife. That is the whole story of Zayd radiallahu anhu and Zainab radiallahu anha. Zainab bin Tujahash. So Zayd radiallahu anhu was an adopted son of Rasulullah 
sallallahu alaihi wasallam who was a slave that rasulullah sallallahu alaihi freed when he chose to remain as a slave instead of going back home with his father and uncle who came to claim him and he was known as zaid ibn muhammad then rasulullah sallallahu alaihi freed him and made him his adopted son and he was married to zainab radiyallahu anha zainab bint jahash who was from the banu al-muttalib banu abdul muttalib cousin of rasulullah sallallahu and then he ended up divorcing her because the marriage did not work out there was a huge uh, gap in, in the husband and wife because he was a freed slave and she was from the Qurayshi Hashemiya woman and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Rasulullah to marry her and Allah ta'ala did not and Rasulullah was hesitating to marry her because it would be considered as a daughter-in-law there's, a, there's another long story there anyway so these are all different types of relations. So this is important to know that where there is uh, no possibility of fitna, that's why that, that individual is known as mahram. The term mahram comes from hurmat, to be haram. So um, it's haram to marry, therefore it is permissible not to have ikhtilat, it is permissible to remain and, uh, in solitude and not to wear a niqab and cover at that level. And there's a very common mistake that people say is that when they say that a person is traveling, you know, um, like for example, in our, in our tabligi terminology, they say, mahram mastura jamaat. The woman must travel with her mahram. But many times they're not traveling with their mahram. In Sharia, it's always mahram awiz zoj or husband. The husband is not a mahram. The husband better not be a mahram. If the husband is mahram, it's incest. Is the husband a mahram of a woman? Husband is not mahram. Husband is husband. So husband is different than mahram. So they'll say that mahram asturat. It's not, the husband is not a mahram. Shara'an is not a mahram. If it's a mahram, then that is very, very, very major sin. So that is why in, in fiqh, in Arabic, when we study, it's either that a woman will travel with who? With zoj awil mahram, with husband or mahram. When she goes to Hajj, she will go with who? Husband or Mahram? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is it clear? Huh? Is the husband a Mahram? No, husband is not a Mahram. And the other concept is that, Na'udhu Billah, if within the Maharim, if, some, if a woman says that, I fear fitna, the actual illa and the reason behind the ruling was fitna. Na'udhu Billah, if there's someone very corrupt, uh, who has evil uh, looks with an evil lustful glance that's why where this example came in because the other ones are even worse every one of them is worse but this one perhaps a little bit less uh, because uh, there's no blood relationship so we have the hala'ilu abna'ikum Allah Ta'ala mentions the daughter-in-law is mahram but if the daughter-in-law says that I feel that he's looking at me in a, with a wrong glance what would apply? you go back to the original ruling since there is a fitna here then niqab would become wajib for this daughter-in-law in front of the father-in-law. Likewise, remaining in khalwa would become haram. It would become haram. Because you go back to the original ruling. Because that means that the fitrah, the natural disposition Allah has given, has become corrupted. Has become corrupted. And the ruling is based on the natural fitrah. May Allah Ta'ala, uh, fitrah. Fitrah means fitratullahi allati fatara nas aliyah, the natural disposition Allah has given. So that was regarding the term fitna. We're talking about dihya al-kalbi. So he came with the letter, 
When did he come with a letter? Rasulullah with a letter, and this is in the um, seventh year of Hijrah. The sixth year of Hijrah was Hudaybiyah, and Allah Ta'ala had granted peace to the, between the Mushrikeen of Makkah and, and the Muslimin of Medina, and he brought the letter. What was Hiraqal doing? We talked about the fact that there was the war between the um, Persian Empire and the Roman Empire. Alif Lamim, Ghulibatir Rum, we covered that. The Persians had defeated the Romans all the way up to their capital. But then after that, Allah Ta'ala granted them victory. And the Hiraqal had regained the territory that was lost. Then what happened? To thank Allah Ta'ala, he had taken a vow, another mannat, that he will walk from Hims all the way to Jerusalem. He will walk bare feet to go and thank God, Allah, for the victory. So he was in Jerusalem. When he received the letter, how did he receive the letter? Rasulullah has sent the letter through Dihya Kalbi to the ruler of Busra. Uh, many times when we see this word B-U-S-R-A in the books, people confuse it with Basra. They think it's a typo. The A was turned into a U. It's not, it's not a typo. Basra is a famous port city in Iraq. There were two cities founded by Umar during his Khilafat in Iraq. One is Kufa and one is Basra. And Basra till today exists. It's, it's yeah, south, right, south of Iraq. That is Basra. When Umar saw that all of the Persians did not accept Islam right away, just like they did in the other areas, like in Sham, and many of them maintained their Persian heritage and their fire worshipping culture, the Mujusiyun. And he saw that if the believers are going to mix with the disbelievers, then they will be picking up their habits and their cultures. So, just like today we had Muslim children who came for trick-or-treating to our home. Right? Real story from today. Uh, so, subhanAllah. Yeah, so they will, they will mingle with the non-Muslims and they will pick up their habits. So that is why, even though who was the dominant culture? The Muslims, because they're the ones who were victorious and had defeated the Persians. So the Persians were what? The defeated Maghlub Qawm, the defeated nation. Still, he was afraid of the influence, so he established two new cities from scratch, and he designed them, and he drew up the plans, the city planning, that this will be the different quarters of the city, and each quarter will have its own masjid, and in the center will be the marketplace, and this is the commercial district, and this is the residential district, and this is the jami'ah place where they will have the Jummah prayer, and this is where they'll have their Eid prayer, and this is where they'll have their, their court and their hospital. Everything he designed it for Kufa and Basra. This comes in the Khilafat of Umar the Arab In the time of Rasulullah this city of Basra didn't exist. It did not exist. It was a completely what? Planned city. Right? Like those who are from Pakistan. For example, you have Rawalpindi and Islamabad. Rawalpindi was organically grew. Right? Islamabad is what? Completely planned city from scratch. That's why it is so straight. Right? All the different quarters. One side you have Faisal Mazda, the other side you have Parliament. Everything is completely designed. Planned city. So Kufa and Basra were planned cities. This Busra was an ancient city in Sham. Rasulullah himself visited it two times. One when he was 12 years old with his uncle Abu Talib. What happened there when he was going for the trade caravan? As a young boy with his uncle, 
Rasulullah's father passed away before he was born, his mother passed away when he was six, grandfather passed away when he was eight, Abdul Muttalib. Then from the age of eight, who took care of him? Abu Talib. So at the age of 12, four years in, under the care of Abu Talib, at that particular moment, the uncle Abu Talib took Muhammad وسلم, his nephew with him in a trade caravan and they went to Busra. And when he was at Busra, the incident happened. Which one? Of Buhaira Rahim. Buhaira, the monk, saw him. And he told Abu, what did he tell Abu Talib? Turn back, take him back. The Yehud will kill him if they see the things I have seen, where the palm tree is giving him shade and the different miracles. Second time he went there uh, was when? At the age of 25. With Khadija al Kubra radiallahu anha's caravan. When she sent her slave to watch over him and to do an investigation about him as she was interested in marrying him. So he went to Busra. So Rasulullah sent Dihya Kalbi to Busra. And over there in Busra was the provincial governor. This shows that Rasulullah was respecting the hierarchy. That you do not bypass the provincial governor and go straight to the king. So he sent the letter to the provincial governor. The provincial governor was supposed to approve it and then send it further on. But then he said that Oh, the, the king is right here in the, in the same province, nearby Jerusalem. Because he had come for the pilgrimage. So he, he uh, sent the Kalbi there. So he says, Fi min Quraysh. Hiraqal, when he got the letter, um, he, he wanted to investigate who, who is this person who is claiming prophethood. What is the contents of that letter? Is at the end of the hadith. We may not realistically reach there. So we will see that, inshallah, hopefully next week, if Allah Ta'ala gives tawfiq. We try to get through the questions this time. And then where the letter starts, we will continue, try to pick up from there. That is my intention, Allahu A'lam. We'll see. So what happens is that Hiraqal, he says, uh, he wanted to do investigation. Where did this letter come from? So he said, who are, are there any Arabs in the, in, in the area? And they found Abu Sufyan was there with his companions. They were merchants who had come to Sham for buying and selling. This was in the period of time that Rasulullah had entered into a peace treaty with Abu Sufyan and the Kufar of the Quraysh so they could freely travel. What did he say? They came to Hiraqal and they were in, in Jerusalem. So he called them into his Majlis. Jalas means to sit. Majlis is a place of fitting, sitting. So Majlis means his court. He called them into his court. And around him were the Adama, plural of Azim, meaning the great leaders, noble men of Rome. Rome again is not Rome in Italy, Eastern Roman Empire. This becomes confusing for people because we know of one Rome today, and that Rome is in Italy, right? But not that one here. Then he invited them. Uh, there's a question here. It says here, He invited them to sit with him. And then it says, Then he invited them. Why is it repeated twice? It means that first they were invited from outside where they were to come into the waiting area. Now they're sitting in the lobby, waiting area. Second time, Then he invites them from the waiting area to come into the actual private chamber. So that means there's a 
a process. It's not you just get direct admittance to the king. The scholars talk about this here because the word da'ahum, you see it here, for da'ahum, and then you see thumma da'ahum, then invited. Why? So they're going through checkpoint after checkpoint to get inside. Then wada'abi tarjumanihi, then he called his tarjuman. Tarjuman is the one who is the translator. So uh, the, the translator has the role. He, the translator's role is to translate exactly what's happening, not to add and not to subtract. This is the role of the tarjuman. You cannot make any khiana. That's a major khiana. Rasulullah had a tarjuman from the Yahud when he would write letters to the Jewish tribes. Then he was afraid that they may be adding or subtracting, they may be changing the message. So then he called Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu, who was a young prodigy, child, genius, young Sahabi. And he told him that, I ask you to, I want you to learn Hebrew so you can be my tarjuman, the same tarjuman that we see here. So alhamdulillah, he mastered Hebrew in 15 days. So he got his full degree in Hebrew in 15 days. He came back, he said, I got it. I'm ready for the job. Subhanallah. Zayd ibn Thabit was a great mufti of Medina. Allah Ta'ala took a lot of work from him. And he was the chairman of the Quran compilation committee that compiled the Quran during the Khilafat of Abu Bakr and likewise during the Khilafat of Uthman. So this is an amana not to Many years ago, there was an ishtama in Jama Masjid and Mawlana Ibrahim Dayullah was giving a bayan. So I was interested with the tarjuma in the main majma, in the main gathering. So I did whatever I could. But at the end of the talk, when uh, they were doing the tashkil, so I asked Hadrat Mawlana Ibrahim Dayullah that Hadrat um, Agar tarjuma me kuch. Which means that, oh Sheikh, in translating your talk, if I ended up missing something, then please forgive me. So, Hazrat said that, uh, Hazrat said, <laughs> So he said that, why are you seeking forgiveness from me? Because if you made a deficiency in the translation, you have not violated my right. The translation is a right of the public sitting in front of us, the whatever, 2,000 people. And if you have violated their rights, then go ahead and ask them forgiveness. Why are you asking me forgiveness? SubhanAllah. So that was, that is, they say, the Sahabat of the alerts, you learn so many things just like that. Just by, I was so shocked. Then that stuck in my mind. Till today, when I see the word tarjuman, it comes to my mind. Even though obviously I wasn't planning to say this, but it came to my mind now that tarjuma is what? It's an amana. Sometimes we see like the slaughtering and khiana of this amana, where some, if you understand both languages and the translation is going on, the speaker is saying something, and subhanAllah, the translator is, has license. You know, they, have, they talk about poetic license, maybe they have the translator's license. Anyway, wada'abi tarjumani. So he said, فَقَالَ أَيُّكُمْ أَقْرَبُ نَسَبًا بِهَذَا الرَّجُلِ He asked first question, which one of you is closest in lineage with this man? Which man? 
um, there, it cannot be denied that there is a huge impact uh, that the parents play in their behavior with each other on the children. And of course, in nowadays where everything is based on scientific data and analysis and you know the numbers, there, there are studies, of course, that would prove this point, which should be a very obvious point that if the way a girl sees her mother treating her father, the way a son sees or uh, the father treating the mother, that's how they will, uh, you know, that will impact the way they will treat their future spouses. So, there is something in our deen called kafa'ah. Kafa'at means to be at a same, similar level. So the kafa'at, number one, most important thing is in deen. They both have, must have deen. Then after that, there's nasab, family. Then there's hirfa, which is straight. So, <clears throat> it is, the more uh, comparable they are, then it's easier for the marriage to be successful. And the more different they are, it doesn't mean it's impossible, but it will just be more challenging. They will have to work harder in overcoming those obstacles. But it's never impossible. If there's someone, uh, you know, it is... If you push it to the extreme, it's, it's not impossible for any two individuals to get together and to lead a life if fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You could have a, um, you know, someone from the North Pole, an Eskimo living in ice and snow, could marry someone from tropical region, an island in the Pacific. It could happen. I mean, mind over matter. If they make up their mind that we have to live together, they will live together, right? But if the, the closer they are, and the closer the culture is, the languages, these things will make it easier. And we have so many challenges as it is, so uh, the easier we make it for ourselves, the greater chances of what? Success, inshaAllah. So nasab is important to a certain extent. But we cannot, uh, we have to be careful with this concept. We cannot take it to extreme, where if there's a person who has deen and has education, but we reject that offer, or that proposal based just on family? No. And we'll give preference to someone who is of the family, of the same tribe, of the same culture, even though they have less deen. Now that is what? Wrong. That's absolutely wrong. So Rasulullah he said, for example, مَنْ بِهِ عَمَلُهُ لَمْ يُسْرِعْ بِهِ نَسَبُهُ Whosoever's actions are such that they make him fall behind, then just the fact that he has good lineage will not bring them forward. Rasulullah told Fatima radiallahu Ya Fatima, O Fatima, save yourself from the fire of Jahannam. La shia. I will not be able to come to your aid. Don't rely on the fact that you are bin to Muhammad You have to have your own good deeds. So, so giving preference to family and tribe and nationality and language over the deen, that is not what we are promoting. We are talking about when the deen is there, and on top, along with that, if there are further similarities, then that would be something to also consider. Anyway, so he said, minni. So then Hiraqal said, bring him close to me. Dunuun means close. This dunya is the first one, we are close to it. That's why it's called dunya. Then there's akhira, which is the second one, the hereafter. Udnuhu minni, bring him close to me. Uh, and then bring his companions uh, nearby as well. This transition is, is from the previous page, huh? Yeah, okay. So anyway, I'm here. 
وَقَرِّبُوا أَصْحَابُوا Bring his companions close. فَجَعَلُوهُمْ عِنْدَ ظَهَرِهِ And then make them stand by his back. So the, the way this physically happened is that if, imagine a Hiraqal was sitting in the front, then he told Abu Sufyan, he brought Abu Sufyan to come stand in front of him. And then he said, bring his companions and make them stand in the line behind. Just like the Imam is facing the Qibla and behind is the first stuff. And the positioning is important. Why is the positioning important? I will explain it as we see the tarjuma. ثُمَّ قَالَ لِتَرْجُمَانِهِ Then Hiraqal, he tells his translator, قُلْ لَهُمْ Tell these Qurayshis, these Arabs, إِنِّي سَائِلٌ Verily, I am going to be asking questions. عَنْ هَذَا الرَّجُلُ Regarding this man. فَإِنْ كَذَبَنِي فَكَذِّبُوهُ If he lies to me, then you need to point out the fact that he's lying. You need to speak up and say he's a liar. This is a falsification of the matter. The definition of كِذْبِذْ الْبَيَانِ لِمَا هُوَ خِلَافُ الْوَاقِعِ to express something which is contrary to the actual fact. I mean, i.e. lying, right? Basically, lying. So, lying is lying. <laughs> we know what lying is. Explaining some, saying something which is contrary to the reality. If he does that, you need to, uh, uh, subhanAllah, you need to declare him to be a liar. So, one is takzib, and one, see, one is to lie, one is to speak the truth. The one who is speaking the truth is, is sadiq. And the one who is lying is kathib. And if you say someone's a liar, that's takdeeb. And if you say someone spoke the truth, that's tasdeeq. So when we have iman, when you say what is the definition of iman, we say that, amantu billahi kamahu bi asma'i wa sifati wa qabilla jami'a ahkamihi. And then, or amantu billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rasulihi. Wal kutubi wa rasulihi wal yawmi al-akhiri. Wal qadri khayri wa shari min Allah ta'ala wal ba'ati ba'da al-mawt. Iqraran bil lisani. We testify with the tongue. Wa tasdeeqan bil qalb. Tasdeeqan bil qalb. We make tasdeeq from the heart. We make tasdeeq. You've heard of the word tasdeeq. Tasdeeq we say to believe. Translate tasdeeq as? What do we translate tasdeeq? What is tasdeeq? Iman is tasdeeq. Tasdeeq is to believe. But in reality, tasdeeq is the opposite of takdeeq. Tasdeeq means to declare and say that so and so is sadiq, is truthful. So when you make tasdeeq in iman, we are saying that Muhammad sallallahu he came as a messenger of Allah and he gave us all the information and the news from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regarding the past where we came from, regarding the future where we're going, regarding the hukum of Allah for us in the present. This is the Quran, this is the book of Allah, this is Jannah, Jahannam. So he is the one who is narrating the news to us from Allah. So when you make tasdeeq, we are saying he is sadiq, he is truthful. To, to say someone is sadiq, He's truthful, that is called tasdeeq. And to say someone is kathib, is a liar, that is takadib. So when you do tasdeeq, we are testifying that Nabi wasallam. we believe from the bottom of our heart, he is true in that which he is conveying to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the reality of tasdeeq, which is the opposite of takadib. Fakadibu, so declare him to be a liar. You, t- you make his takdeeb and say, Abu Sufyan is lying here. He's falsifying the fact. He's giving false testimony. Now, going back to the position, why did Hiraqal, Hiraqal from the beginning till end, you'll see so how wise he was, and how intelligent he was, how educated he was. But at the end of the day, despite everything, what overcomes? Kibar. Or uh, not more than Kibar, I would say, Hubbul Jah, the love of power. That was his point where he failed. Hmm. 
That was the test he failed. So the reason he made them stand like this is because the scholars mention that uh, when you have, when you see someone eye to eye, face to face, then since he was their leader, it would be difficult for uh, the merchants and the tujjar who were with him, his companions, in his face to say, oh, you know, he's a liar. Whereas Abu Sufyan could be staring at him like that. What are you talking about? You know, give him the eye. So he made sure Abu Sufyan is facing him like the Imam, as I said, and his back is to his people. So from the back, if they just raise their hand, that you know he's lying, it would be more comfortable for them. It would be easier for them to point out that Abu Sufyan is lying. That explanation comes from these words here. He says. قَرِّبُوا أَصْحَابُوا Bring the companions close فَجَعَلُوهُمْ عِنْدَ ظَاهِرِهِ Put them behind his back. So whoever is pointing out that Abu Sufyan is a liar, Abu Sufyan cannot see that. And they will have that relative freedom and relaxed environment uh, to, uh, to point out that he is lying. So then after that, Abu Sufyan says, فَوَاللَّهِ I swear by Allah, لَوْلَ الْحَيَاءُ مِنْ أَنْ يَأْثِرُ عَلَيَّ كَذِبًا لَكَذَبْتُ عَنْهُ If it wasn't that the haya I had, that the people would say that, Oh, you lied in front of Hiraqal, I would have had a golden opportunity to lie. I covered this last time, this concept. Remember, he could have gotten the help of the king. The few reasons here, one is, I mentioned, the reason he did not lie is so that he does not, it is mentioned right here, so that people do not blame me and say, Oh, uh, uh, ridicule me or belittle me and say that, you know, you lied just to gain the support because lying was considered such a sign of cowardice, weakness. And another reason is that if I would lie about Muhammad sallallahu in front of Hiraqal, then the story of my lying, this incident, this news would become widespread. And it would become widespread such that eventually the news would potentially reach Hiraqal. And then I would either be imprisoned or I would be banned or ex- from entering his kingdom for trade. Because he would say, you lied to me. You know, like perjury, lying in the court. Or, uh, yeah, lying in the court is a major sin. It's a major, major crime. So, um, okay, so then he says, Then the first question he asked me, How is his lineage amongst you? So I already spoke about the importance of, of lineage. Right? I, I, I mean, a little bit I spoke about it. Much more can be spoken about it, but I give him a little bit. Subhanallah, um, Rasulullah said, Khiyarum fil jahiliyah, khiyarum fil Islam. The best among the people in the jahiliyah, they'll be the best in Islam as well, provided they gain the understanding of the deen. Because they already have a beautiful environment that they're growing up in. Faqultu, I responded, I said, Hu afina dhu nasabin. Amongst us, he has a great, great lineage. Where is the word great? It's this tanween. Nasabin, this tanween lita'adim. The tanween here means nasabin adimin. Great, great uh, lineage. Like, for example, they say in Arabic, huwa rajulun, lun, with a tanween. That means rajulun adimun. He's a great man. Um, Allah Ta'ala says that, rijalun. They are great men that neither trade nor merchandise beguiles them from the remembrance of Allah. So this tanween is lita'adhim. 
So dhu nasabin, he had a nasab. Otherwise, the translation would be like dhu malin, the one who has mal, money, dhu ilmin, the one who has knowledge. Dhu nasabin, he had a nasab. Duh, of course he has a nasab, but where he didn't come from the sky. He's not Adam al Islam, nor is he half like Isa al Islam. <laughs> he has a father and a mother. So what do you mean he had a nasab? This nasabin means nasabin adim. He has a great nasab, great family. The detail of that, Rasulullah said, Allah just selected, you know, from the best, you know, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Khalilullah, from Ismail alayhi salam, then Adnan, from Adnan, the best Allah ta'ala selected, Fahr ibn Malik, the Quraysh, from the Quraysh, Allah selected Banu Hashim, from Banu Hashim, Allah selected Muhammad sallallahu Then his second question, he said, this uh, claim of prophethood, has anyone else made this claim before? Like, is this something that typically happens every few decades or every few years or every even centuries? Right? So that's a very interesting question too. He's asking, is there a culture or an environment or some precedent of, of claiming prophethood amongst your people? I said, no, nobody ever said this. Now Abu Sufyan says that you know he quickly said no because you know this so presumptuous, so made up, so, so nobody even made up such a thing before. Of course, nobody said this. Whereas Hiraqal, why was he asking? Because he's trying to see that is there a trend of this or is it something that is from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala? For about six hundred years from the time Isa Alayhi Salam approximately till Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, nobody claimed prophethood. Nobody thought it's a good idea. But what happened? <laughs> After Rasulullah claimed, uh, after not he claimed, yeah, I mean, he made the proclamation and he was a true Nabi of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But when he made the, after he made his proclamation, what happened? People got the idea. Then you have copycats, right? So just like good things happen, bad things happen, then you have people who are copycatters, right? Like from the worst things to the best things, from the killers to the whatever, people want to copy it. Uh, so, you know, the kids, they, re- they read these joke books and stuff like that. One of my children, he asked me a joke. He said that, oh, Baba, there, there were six cats, all right? Well, I already give the answer anyway. So there were six cats on the boat. One jumped off. How many left? So I said, oh, Hakim, that's six bo- cats on the boat. One jumped off. Hmm, six, maybe five? He said, no, zero. I said, how is that? What kind of math is that? He said, no, the rest were copycats, <laughs> right? So, okay. So, so, they all, so this is what happened. Rasulullah sallallahu when, when he when he claimed prophethood, what happened? Sayyidina al-Kadhab, Asad Anasi, Tuleha, all these prophets came up. Now, what's the objective of their prophethood? Sometimes, you know, you know, you have to read between the lines. They say something, but there's actual another motive. Sometimes, so you know, in Arabic we call that bayna sutur. So in English, when you say you got to read between the lines, what does that mean? You got to understand what's going on. But in our books, the way the text is, like all of these additional comments, they actually write it between the lines. So it's like physically between the lines. Baina sutur. Like small notes between the lines. And then there's behind the lines. But in this case, with Musayla Muzul Kadhab, you don't have to read between the lines, behind the lines. It's right in the lines. Because Musayla Muzul Kadhab, he wrote the letter to Rasulullah And what does he say? The letter makes it very clear what the objective of his false claim to prophethood is. He writes in the letter, Ya Muhammad, this Kadhab is writing, he says that, Jibreel came to me too. Oh yeah? 
and he granted me prophethood and he told me that guess what half the world belongs to you and half the world belongs to me so what's the purpose of this whole prophethood the world the half the dunya belongs to you and half the dunya material belongs to me so what's the objective of claiming the prophethood is right in the lines so Rasulullah replied back to him Muhammadin Abdullah Rasulullah from Muhammad the slave of Allah and the messenger to Musaylamah the Kazab. You know, that you are false in your claim. On the other hand, with Rasulullah, the, the mala zakat was not only haram for him, for his progeny, ila yomil qiyamah. So that there is no objection that the purpose of prophethood was to amass a financial empire. And when Hassan and Hussein were crying from hunger and they took the date from zakat and were eating it, he opened their mouth and took it out and spit it out, made them spit it out. He said, Oh, Ya Buniya, this is haram upon my progeny, la yomil qiyamah. So he had no objective for the dunya, sallallahu alayhi wa So that's why he's asking, Is this a trend? Is there any precedent? Hal hadal qawlu minkum ahdun? Anyone said this before? Qultu la. So then, <clears throat> then he said, Fahal kana min aba'ihi min malikin. From his forefathers, was there any king? Why is he asking if there's a king? Because if he is from the progeny of a king, then he has that motivation in the back of his mind to regain the lost glory of my forefathers. <laughs> my forefathers were kings. That's why when they, when they destroy kingdoms in history, whole history is bloody. This is what the Malaika, they saw it, right? Before, when Adam was created, they had, they had uh, perused through the Lohe Mahfuz, they, they saw it. That's why they asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَإِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ إِنِّي جَاعِلٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةً قَالُوا وَتَجْعَلُوا فِيهَا O oh Allah, are you going to create in this world مَنْ يُفْسِدُ فِيهَا وَيَسْفِكُ الْدِمَاءِ Are you going to create such creation that was going to be spilling blood on this earth? وَنَحْنُ نُسَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِكُ وَنُقَدِّسُ لَكُ And we are praising you, glorifying you, O oh Allah, we, you know, we're not good enough for you, you're creating these human beings. So what do you see when you have, the, when you have these... Uh, dynasties and kings that come and then the other kings come the whole history is so bloody 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 so they they go and they find every single lost prince and second cousin third cousin prince to kill him off like when the Banu Umayyah were replaced by the Banu Abbasiyah every single individual in the entire Banu Umayyah family royal family they hunted them down to the last individual they're running from here to there to there one finally little prince he escaped all the way to Spain Andalusia, and he founded the, the, the Banu Umayyah second dynasty in Spain otherwise you know, they go after the little kids because any child could eventually one day come back try to reclaim the honor of the, of the, of the family Uh, from that time all the way to like recent times like the Soviets what did they do right and huh they shot the entire they killed the entire all the little prince princesses everyone of the, of the Tsar of Russia okay is there any king there's no king okay then he said no king in his family so he's basically ruling out what is he doing ruling out false motives then he said, Then he asked, Are the noble people and the upper class people following him or the weaker ones? 
the downtrodden ones. فَقُلْتُ بَلْ ضُعَفَاءُهُمْ Then I said, no, the weak ones. This was uh, a, a true answer, but it was not the complete truth and nothing but the truth. You know, I swear to speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because Abu Bakr Siddiq anhu was min ashraf al-nas. Umar bin Khattab, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, Abu Bakr Umar, you know, we normally say Abu Bakr Uthman Ali. We, why we skip other individuals like Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib? It's because Allah accepted him as a shaheed in battle of Uhad. If he sticked around, then, you know, Allah alam if he would beat Abu Bakr, but he would have been from among the Khulafa Rashidun for sure, based on his sifat. You understand? But subhanAllah, Allah Ta'ala took him earlier. So he's right up there though, with Abu Bakr, Umar, Hamza. In fact, he preceded Islam, preceded Hamza, uh, Hamza radiallahu anhu, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of Rasulullah was there, a Muslim, before Umar bin Khattab radiallahu And Uthman bin Affan, Ali bin Abi Talib. So they were min ashraf in nas. They were leaders. His answer is correct with respect to majority. The majority of the followers were your Bilal Habshi and your Ammar bin Yasir and Khabbab, the weak ones. Why is it? It is because what happens basically is that the rich individuals, the nobles, uh, uh, they're well off, they're okay, they're happy with life. And they don't want any change in the status quo. They don't want, they don't like revolutions. They want to remain in the position of power that they are in, very simply. So whenever any revolutionary comes, any, any you're talking about Russia, for example. So what happened, the Bolshevik revolution or any of these revolutions, whether it's Karl Marx, whether it's Lenin, whether it's this one, that one, any revolution from any, the entire spectrum of different political parties. <laughs> it's always, you know, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote, the weak individuals, the oppressed individuals, they may be manipulated by the leaders, but they're the backbone of the revolution. They're the ones who will fight for the change. And the rich and the powerful, they will be, end up being on the defensive. They don't like the change. They want to keep things as is because they're happy with that. That's why every single nation in the Quran, Allah Ta'ala says, قَالَ الْمَلَأُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا the leaders who are the kafirin, they responded this to Shoaib salam to this Nabi, to that Nabi. This happens to Shoaib salam comes to mind because that's the first ayah of the ninth juz. That's the story of whom? Shoaib salam The leaders who denied. You don't have the leaders who believed. And that is why, subhanAllah, one of the reasons why Islam spread so fast in Medina is because of the huge, long, drawn-out battle between the Aus and the Khazraj, the two Arab tribes, in which more, majority of the leadership was killed off. So otherwise they would have all been leaders of the opposition. But there was only a few individuals, leaders remaining. They had finally made Sulaan reconciliation, and they had decided Abdullah ibn Ubay would be the leader of the United Medina, and they had ordered his crown for the coronation from Yemen, and they were about to crown him as the United King of Medina, and lo and behold, all his dreams vanished into thin air when So this same leader, to be, became the leader of the Munafiqun, the leader of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Ubay. So this leadership in the dunya, it becomes an obstacle in accepting the truth. In many cases. Again, not in all cases, but in many cases. So he was aware of all this stuff. Because this king was quite learned. He knew this. So he's asking all these questions. Then he asked, are they increasing in number or they are decreasing? 
So he said, Qultu bal yazidun, they are increasing in number. Subhanallah. So when Islam starts, when any righteous, when Allah Ta'ala sends a Nabi, and they are in the initial phases, Subhanallah, Allah Ta'ala increases the numbers. Qala fahal yartaddu ahadun minhum sakhtatan lidinihi, ba'da an yadkhula fihi. Then he asked, Hiraqal asked, does any one of them become a murtad, forsakes his religion, out of anger for his deen, after he entered into it? Qultu la, I said no. So whoever accepted Islam, did any one of them leave Islam sakhtatan lidinihi out of sakhta means anger it says in your translation becoming displeased so that 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 word is significant because were there murtads there were a few murtads na'udhu billah min zalik so you say wait a second you're saying there was a murtad in the time of Rasulullah can a, a sahabi was a murtad Hold on, hold on. He's not a Sahabi. Why is he not a Sahabi? No, because the definition of a Sahabi is the one who saw Rasulullah Yes. Then, believed in Rasulullah Then, dies with Iman. So if he died without Iman as a Murtad, is that a Sahabi? So no Sahabi became Murtad. They were individuals in the time of Rasulullah who accepted Islam and became Murtad. But they were never Sahabi. They were Kafir. They died in Kufr. And there are few examples of them. And, but whenever they did become murtad, uh, they never became murtad sakhtatan lidini, becoming displeased with the deen. But rather they became murtad out of greed, tama' lalaj, hirs. And Abu Sufyan knew that. But he was honest here. The reason he knew that is because someone close to him was a murtad. Uzana Sahabi again was a murtad. Who was close to him was a murtad. It's a very, very tragic scenario, story, and it's also, uh, subhanAllah, any murtad story is tragic because it's a, it's a shock uh, and it reminds, it gives, should put us into shock and remind us, subhanAllah, that we have to ask Allah Ta'ala for khatima and iman. Rabbana, la hadaytana. Oh Allah, do not allow our hearts to be cursed. So there was Ubaidullah bin Jahash, apparently accepting Islam. Apparently a believer in the era of Rasulullah and with his wife, Umm Habiba, he migrates to Habasha. He's a muhajir fi sabirillah in Habasha, in Ethiopia. And who is his wife, Umm Habiba? The daughter of this Abu Sufyan. But this Ubaidullah bin Jahash, he gets caught up with Najashi and the members of the court of the Christian emperor of Habasha. And he eventually leaves Islam and he becomes a Christian. Because of the promises of wealth and power and fame and material. He becomes a murtad. So his nikah with Umm Habiba breaks. And then she comes back because her husband becomes a murtad. SubhanAllah. Which is such a tragedy. But then who ends up marrying her? Rasulullah Sallallahu Right. Huh? Ramla Umm Habiba anha is her kunniya. She's known as Umm Habiba Ramla radiyallahu anha. She becomes Umm al-Mu'minin. Uh, so, Subhanallah, that's an example of a murtad. Now, there are two ways people have explained this. One is that, okay, that happened in Habasha. He was unaware of it. Maybe that's why he responded. Some say, no, he was aware of it. But it is because of this statement. Sakhtatan lidinihi. That 
he, he saw that this is a restrictive clause in this question. Meaning, he's asking, did anyone forsake the deen of Islam because they became displeased? He wasn't displeased, Ubaidullah bin Jahash. He did it because of financial gain and, and because of his needs. Rasulullah also warned, Kad al-faqru an yakuna kufra. It is, it is near that poverty can take a person towards kufr. So many of the missionaries in the impoverished Muslim lands that they're going, you know, and you know, uh, they may be like a, a child of a Muslim child. Um, the closest he ever got to, uh, like a chocolate, is licking a wrapper from the garbage and imagining how the chocolate inside may be. So if you give him a whole box of chocolate, see these Chinese chocolates. You know, you can take this. All you have to say is, Jesus is my savior. He died on the cross. So he will end up saying the kalima of kufr for the dunya. So we ask from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protection. Allah min min faqrin. Such faqr, which will make a person forget Allah, munsiya. And such ghina, and such wealth, mudghiya, which will intoxicate a person into arrogance. The two extremes are mentioned in that hadith, in that dua. Anyway, so then he goes on. He says, no. فَهَلْ كُنْتَمْ تَتَّهِمُونَهُ بِالْكَذِبِ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَقُولَ مَا قَالَ Then, Hiraqal, the next question he asked, did you ever accuse him of lying before he said that which he said? Um, Subhanallah. So, look at the question. Hiraqal didn't say, did he lie before he said what he said? He didn't say that. He said, did you ever accuse him even of lying? So is before he said what he said. Because after he claimed what he claimed to be a prophet, of course you're saying, oh, you're a liar, you're a liar, you don't believe in him. But did you ever accuse him of telling lies before he's claimed to be a prophet? So we're not even talking about did he lie or not. We're talking about was there ever any accusation of lying. Do you understand there's a difference between to be accused as a liar and then to be proven to be a liar. So I'm not asking was he proven to be a liar. I'm asking was he even ever accused to be a liar. Like someone is proven to be a thief or accused to be a thief. SubhanAllah. It reminds me of a story. There was a muhaddith. It's very much related to this. Uh, he was traveling in a boat. Uh, so then what happened is, um, one day he wanted to take out something, so he opened his, his purse, his wallet, and he was, he was going through his, his money, and he was counting it, and he put it back. But there was a thief on the boat who saw the entire exercise that he was undergoing. And he said, wow, I saw this bag and I saw how many gold coins are in this bag. So sometime afterward, he made a big hue and cry. Someone stole my purse, someone stole my purse. It has so many gold coins. So the captain of the boat said, okay, line up everyone and we're going to search through everyone's belongings. And then whoever is the thief is going to get caught. Where are you going to escape? You're not going to jump overboard in the middle of the ocean. No way to escape. So when they lined up everyone, they searched everyone's belongings, and they could not find the purse anywhere. Then he went back to that thief who made that, you know, cried wolf, wolf, the one who said, my, my purse is stolen. He said, why did you waste everyone's time this few dollar exercise? There is no purse on the entire boat anywhere. Who is the thief here? Where is it? He, there's no place you could hide it. We checked everything. So then he had no answer. He was... Uh, he just was dejected, and that was the end of it. Then the thief finally he went back 
to that man who had the money and he said that okay fine I admit it it was your money I saw it and I'm not going to say anything else no one's going to believe me now anyway I'm not going to do any other drama my drama is over but where in the world did you hide it nobody in the boat can find it the captain and the sailors they know every nook and cranny of this boat it was built in front of them it's their boat they can't find it where do you hide it how did you hide it so he said I didn't hide it I threw it overseas in the boat. I threw it into the ocean. He said, why do you throw it into the ocean? He said that, of course I didn't steal. It was my money. But I did not want to stand in the community with the allegation that I stole. Because I am a student of hadith. And if there is an allegation of theft on my record, my record will be smeared. And then no one will learn hadith from me because I will become a weak narrator. And this muhaddith, his name was Imam Muhammad ibn Ismail, al-Yamani, al-Jurfi, al-Bukhari, the Sahib al-Bukhari, the one whose book we are studying. This is the story of the same Imam Bukhari. He threw away a whole fortune of gold into the ocean to preserve his honor, to protect his name from ever having the allegation of of being a thief, much less being a thief. That is how he received the title of Amir al-Mu'mineen fil hadith amongst many of his attributes. SubhanAllah. So he asked, did you ever accuse him of being a liar? So we know. What was he known as? As-Sadiq al-Ameen. And Rasulullah when he began his da'wah, what is the first thing he said to the people when they gathered? He gathered them, he made their proclamation. And when they all gathered, he said, Oh, Ya Ahl Quraysh, this is a famous story from Sirah. If I tell you, I'm standing at the vantage point. Look what an amazing instructor he was, teacher. Physically, he showed that I'm standing in such a position, vantage point, I can see behind me. Can you see what's behind this mountain? No. Can I see? Yes. So I see behind it. If I tell you that there's an army ready to attack you, will you believe me? They said, of course, we'll believe you, Sadiq al-Amin. So he said, I'm here to warn you that there's an adab and shadid coming if you do not believe in when Allah. So Abu, Abu Lahab, he said, Tabban laka, alihada, jama'dana. May you be cursed. You gathered us for this nonsense. Na'udhu billah. Then Allah responded, Tabbat yada abi lahab. May you be cursed. <coughs> so, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he presented this as an evidence to his people that I never spoke a lie. Why would I lie about this? Allahu Akbar. Qablain. I just want to finish the questions I said. Does he ever break treaties? Does Ghadar? Ghadar is khiana. Um, break his promises. I said no. He never breaks his promises. However, if he had just entered the truce of Hudaybiyah, we don't know what he's going to do now. He may break it. So this was, he himself says this is an absolutely what? Unnecessary comment. Because regarding the past, he cannot lie. Regarding the present, he cannot lie. Regarding the future, he can make up anything and say, well, it's not a lie. It's just, I feel so. He himself says, because Imam, remember Abu Sufyan, this incident happened when he was non-Muslim. But he's telling the story to Abdullah bin Abbas when he is? Muslim. Otherwise, this hadith would be have no 
value if it's a statement of a kafir. So he says, there was no opportunity for me to enter anything from my own side besides this one word. Let's see where the English is here. He says here, I could not find opportunity to say anything against him except that. I don't know what he's going to do next. But the Muslims, if you know, they, they never, the, I mean, Rasulullah never broke his promise. And the early Muslims, they never broke their pledges and promises. There are many, many examples of that. So we have the brothers, you know, it reminds me of from Samarqan, subhanAllah, the story of Samarqan, how Islam came to Samarqan. That there is a, there is a, there is a, Tartib, um, there is an order in our deen. First, that they would go and invite them towards Islam. And then if they would not accept, then what would happen? Then they would say that, okay, you are in the way for us to spread Islam to the nations behind, enter into the Islamic Darul Khilafah, and you can give the jizya, the poor tax, the, the, the tax of non Muslims. And we will protect you, and we will defend you, uh, and you will be exempted from participating in jihad for military service, and you will be under the Muslim state. And if they refuse that, then it would be the opportunity to attack. So what happened is one of the generals, when he was going in that region, came to Samarqand, he jumped. He did not invite towards Islam, nor did he present the jizya option. He entered in the city and took it over. And they were not prepared. It was a surprise attack. So the whole city was conquered rapidly, very quickly. Now what happened is that the chieftains of the city that were now vanquished and destroyed and they went underground, they knew that this was still in the early days when, when the Muslims were following the correct path of Rasulullah This happened to be in the era of Umar bin Abdul Aziz, who is known as the fifth rightly guided Khalifa, Khamisul Khalifa Rashidin. He was so honest and so upright, he only lasted two and a half years before the princes from the Banu Umayyah poisoned and killed him because he had cut off all their illegal you know, pensions from the Baytul Mal. So, from the public treasury. So, <clears throat> there are many, many stories of Umar bin Abdul Aziz, but it's only two and a half years before he was killed, poisoned by his own family. So, Umar bin Abdul Aziz was the Khalifa. So, they said he is very just, and this is wrong what happened. So, they sent a writer with his message from Samarkand all the way in the east, right? Central Asia, Mawara'un Nahar, Uzbekistan, all the way to the capital. The capital was not Baghdad. Baghdad is later on capital of Banu Abbas. Who is the capital? Dimashq, Damascus, was the capital of the Banu Umayyah. He went all the way to Dimashq in Syria, which is the west. I mean west from Samarkand's perspective. All the way till there, and he came riding, and when he got there, he asked the people, where is the palace of the Amir Mu'minin? And there was a house with unbaked bricks. There's two types of bricks, the baked ones, which is pretty much all the bricks are baked bricks, and then there's the unbaked ones. The unbaked ones, kachi'int, as they say. Uh, so when they make it with the mud, then they don't put it in the oven and bake it. So it's basically lower building material, lowest class possible. And since it was an unbaked brick wall, uh, with the, it's not that weather resistant, obviously. So there was a storm or something, and the wall had broken. So he, there was a laborer repairing the, the wall. So somebody said, oh, that's Amir Mu'mini. So then uh, he said, my home, my nation of Samarkand is in distress, and I'm the messenger sent to bring relief to my city, and I have come galloping on my horse across countries and countries and weeks and weeks, and you are joking with me. You're sending me to this labor 
Where's the presidential palace? Where's the Mu'minin? He said, that's the one you want to see. He said, okay, you know, you're wasting my time. Let me go ask him. Maybe he'll help me. So he went to the laborer and he said, can you guide me to the Amir Mu'minin? So he said, I'm the Khadim of the believers. Of course, it was Omar bin Abdul Aziz himself. So then he said, he mentioned the story of his people and the plight of his nation. So <laughs> Omar bin Abdul Aziz, the interesting thing is, he, it says that he took, um, he, didn't, he wanted to be green, economical, didn't want to waste paper maybe. So it's, it's just an odd uh, fact, but he took a little, small little piece of paper and he cut it into small piece and he scribbled something on it and he wrapped it up like before they had phones and you know texting and all of that when they would pass notes in the class you pass a note like that he made a little post-it and he um, and he um, wrapped it up with his fingers with his thumb and his forefinger he rolled it up and he gave it to him he said take this take this to the governor who took over Samarkand he said you're giving me this little ball what am I going to do with this? I came weeks and weeks and you're just giving me this. I want some messenger. I need royal proclamation. I need something with official seal. He said, no, go ahead, take this. So he took that rolled up little post-it and, and he went all the way back to Samarkand. They said, I mean, that's all he got from the guy who was building the brick, unbaked brick wall. He's fixing it, repairing it. So he went back and he gave it. And then he gave it to his leader. And then the leader in the negotiation, in the treaty, or whatever, he had an opportunity to meet the, the governor. When the governor unrolled it, opened that note, he started trembling. He said, Inna lillahi He started sweating, shivering, and then he made a proclamation from the minarets, and the trumpets were blown. All of the soldiers must retreat and move out. Immediately, we hand over everything back. All the forts, all the positions must be evacuated immediately, retreat. So the whole army left Samarkand. You know the story of Samarkand? Oh. So then, yeah, this is the tarikh of Samarkand. Then the whole story came, the whole army came out. They evacuated the entire region. They went back outside. Then they said, hey, let's do it. Try one more time the right way. So then they came and they said, Ya Allah Samarkand, number one, we invite you towards Islam. What's unique about Samarkand is that this is the only city in the entire history of the Ummah that the entire city, all men, women, young and old, rich and poor, they became Muslim on the same day. The entire city accepted Islam on the same day. Because when they saw this behavior, subhanAllah, that one little post-it and the whole army came out. They said, well, what? This is the true justice. These are people who keep to their words. Subhanallah. There, there's one, uh, you know, I don't want to claim that. There's so many stories of this in a line from all over history. There, not that I read the entire history of all the nations, put them together, but I have to attribute it to Mufti Taqi Uthmani, uh, in one of his mawarith. He has a whole series of these incidents. So this is one incident he mentioned. Then he mentions another incident of Mu'avirudhan's time where an, there was a peace treaty, like Hudaybiyah peace treaty, and uh, the uh, it was with the Eastern Roman Empire, in fact, with the same Eastern Roman Empire. On their front, the, arm, the Muslim general who was there, he prepared his whole army, got them ready and everything to go. The day when, uh, at nightfall, when the treaty expired, he was all ready, and he just attacked. But he waited for the expiry of the, on the, of the date of the treaty. And then it was a surprise, so he kept on advancing all the guard posts, one after the other. They fell, 
forts after forts, and he m made a huge advancement. But then the, the governor of the Byzantine Empire, who was of that region, he sent a message to Muawiyah an. And Muawiyah an was sent a messenger. And he came from the rear, and he was uh, announcing on his trumpet, on his announcing loudly, and he was saying, وَفَاءٌ لَا غَدَرٌ وَفَاءٌ لَا غَدَرٌ You have to fulfill our treaty, do not make غَدَر We cannot make غَدَر meaning deception, khiana. And uh, when the general was approached, he, he had his, in this scenario, he gave his response. He said, no, 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 I didn't attack, I didn't cross the line until the date. He said, no, you had your full preparations. You had prepared and planned everything, so you cannot do that. So in that case, what did they do? Again, he retreated back. Even, in fact, even the Khilafat of Umar had happened. See, we talked about the jizya. It was a really minimum amount. Like two gold coins for a whole 12-month year. And what do you get for that? You get protection of your home, protection of your honor, protection of your houses of worship of Batil. Protection of the houses of worship too. And exempted from military duty. They don't have to participate in any jihad. The non-Muslim, the dhimmi who gives the jizya. So in the Khilafat of Umar anhu, in Sham, in this area, they had accepted the jizya from the people. But then what happened is, uh, Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah, Khalid bin Walid, they made mashara for the battle of Yarmouk, when this Hiraqal, the same Hiraqal, he sent 200,000 soldiers. So they said, wait a second, we're all camped out in four areas. Shurahmid ibn Hasana, one area. Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah was one area. Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan and Yazid bin Abi Sufyan. What are we going to do? How are we going to survive? So we have to consolidate. And where are we going to consolidate? In the southernmost region, closest to Arabian Peninsula. Why? So Amir al-Mu'minin, Umar bin Khattab, when he sends the reinforcements to join us, it'll be easier for them to catch up with us. Because we send a messenger on the horse galloping to Medina to quickly, we need reinforcements. So let's go down to the southernmost extremity. So the four sections of the army came together in the southernmost portion. When they had to come together, what did they have to do? They had to give up the area that had already been conquered. You know what they did before they gave up the area? They went door to door and returned the jizya back. They returned the jizya back to the homes. And they said, what in the world is happening? This is not like the income tax refund. <laughs> Allah. They gave the whole amount back. They said, because when we accepted the jizya from you, and then we had taken a pledge and a promise that we are going to protect you and defend you. But now we are temporarily, due to a tactical reason, we are moving back. I don't want to say it's like a retreat. We're regrouping so that we can move forward. Temporarily moving back, right? Uh, so we are giving you the jizya back. So they went door to door. I mean, that's such a logistical nightmare. You have to go every house and return the jizya money. They did that before they moved back. SubhanAllah. And they started crying. They said, we never seen such a government before. The previous governments were all you know, unjustly taxing us. SubhanAllah. So he says, uh, anyway, فَمَاذَا يَأْمُرُكُمْ Anyway, قَالَ فَهَلْ قَاتَلْتَمُوهُ He said, have you ever fought with him? You know what he said? He attributed the verb of fighting to you. He didn't say, did he fight with you? Rather, what did he say? Have you fought with him? Meaning he knows that a Nabi will never pick a fight. Nabi will never initiate a fight. Nabi is a Rahmah. So he didn't ask, has that Nabi fought with you? What did he ask? Have you fought with him? Because if there's going to be fighting, who's going to start it? 
you're going to start it. Qultunam, I said, yes, we have fought. Then he said, فَكَيْفَ So what was the result of the battles between you and him? He said, the battles between us have been back and forth. In the Sijal, there's a whole linguistic description of it. It's like the bucket when they would, go, when they would be going in a circular motion in the well. It would go down to pick up the water and go back up. So that whole concept is the Sijal. Meaning, sometimes we win, sometimes they win. Sometimes we beat them, sometimes they beat us. Badr, the Muslims won. And Uhad, the Mushrikeen. I mean, the victory was there, but because of the mistake, victory turned into a defeat. And that's a whole lesson on its own. And then the third one was Khandaq, which is stalemate. Because they had come to and besieged Makkah, uh, Medina. There was a ditch. They waited for weeks and weeks. They couldn't cross it. Finally, the wind came and they went away, right? So, they were unsuccessful in their attempt to invade and destroy Medina. But Rasulullah the Sahaba could not pursue them and kill them off either. So it was a stalemate. So that's why it was, the score was pretty much even at that point. Because now which year are we talking about? Seventh year. Right after the Hudaybiyah, sixth year. So that's why he's, he's correct in saying that it's been halfway. And this is the nature. Allah makes you laugh, Allah makes you cry. The nature of life. Allah Ta'ala, after the battle, Uhad says, This is the nature of life. Sometimes you'll have victory, the test of sabr and the test of shukr, etc. There's a whole bayan on that topic. What does he command you to do? He says, Worship one Allah, do not ascribe any partners unto him. Why is he emphasizing this? Because he's saying, oh, you believe in Jesus, son of God? Well, guess what? He doesn't believe in Jesus. Right? So, what <laughs> Leave the religion of your forefathers. <laughs> he commands us for salah and sidq and speaking the truth and afaf to be chaste and silah to have good relations with one's family members. Right? <laughs> then Hiraqal responds from here. We'll pick up from here. From here, Hiraqal, he begins, he ends his questions. It's a new chapter. From here, Hiraqal goes back and he explains to the translator, why did I ask the questions I asked? I asked you the first question for this reason. This was my intention. This was my intention. So he gives the explanation of his questions. So at least there is some stopping point. What, what, what have you stopped at? The end of the questions of Hiraqal. After this, there's no more questions. Then he will be an explanation of his questions. Then we will see the letter of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. May Allah subhanahu wa taala give us tawfiq to uh, understand. Subhanallah. So much to learn about our beloved Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So much for us to increase in our yaqeen uh, that he was the khatam al anbiya. He was the sayyid al awwalin wal akhirin. And may Allah subhanahu wa taala make this a small means of. Uh, increasing our yaqeen, increasing our belief, increasing our love and respect for Rasulullah and how honored we are to belong to his ummah. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give me and all of you the tawfiq to make amal and to be able to carry the messages that we learned from this hadith uh, to our family members, to our friends. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raise us in the company of Nabiyyin and the Siddiqeen Shulayn Salihin wa akhir da'wana. Alhamdulillah.